Hi everybody, it's Tarek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for June 18th, 2019. So for those of you who are subscribers to Foreign Exchanges at fx.substack.com, uh, not to toot my own horn too much here, uh, if you listened to last week's subscriber-only episode, you will know uh, that uh, I'm trying to uh, do a couple of interviews here over the next couple of weeks to kind of bridge the gap uh, until I go on vacation, uh, if you all must know. Um, <laughs> And then after that, we're going to start a new series for subscribers. We haven't decided what the topic is going to be yet, uh, but we will uh, figure that out here at some point. Uh, anyway, I'm very pleased to have actually managed to line up an interview for you guys this week. Uh, that's sometimes easier said than done. Uh, but I'm really excited to be joined by Darren Byler. Uh, Darren is a lecturer in anthropology at the University of Washington. Uh, he studies the Uyghur and other kind of Central Asian Chinese minority groups. Uh, he's written widely on the subject of uh, the ongoing repression of the Uyghur community, uh, China's use of large re-education camps and massive high-tech surveillance uh, and other kinds of pressure campaigns uh, to suppress the Uyghur. Uh, we're going to talk about that. Uh, and we're going to talk about some of his work. Uh, he's got a website called livingotherwise.com, uh, where he tells the stories of uh, Uyghurs and other Central Asian Chinese peoples, um, you know, their, their experiences and the things that they've been living through. Uh, he's also got a regular column. Uh, at a website called SupChina.com. He writes a regular column on Xinjiang, uh, which is the region, the western region of China where the Uyghurs, kind of their homeland. Uh, and he's recently written a piece for, I have to get all the links right, uh, for The Guardian called China's High-Tech War on its Muslim Minority. Uh, all links to all of this stuff will be <clears throat> in the show description, assuming that I don't have a, you know, a complete episode between now and the time I put this up. Uh, so don't worry about that. Uh, and I'm going to get Darren on the Skype here in a minute and we'll start the interview. Okay, so we are joined by Darren Byler, who is a lecturer in anthropology at the University of Washington. Uh, Darren has a website, livingotherwise.com, where he talks about the the stories of the Uyghur people and other kind of Central Asian minorities living in China. Uh, and uh, he's going to help us understand the situation there today. Darren, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. So the first thing I think we need to do, um, you know, for people who are really coming at the, the Uyghur story from, um, you know, a position of, Hey, I saw this on the news, or I read read about this in the you know on, online, but I don't really know what's going on. Can you? I know this is a huge topic, but can you walk us through like the five or ten minute version of who the Uyghurs are and where they come from? Mm -hmm. So the Uyghurs are a group of Turkic Muslim people that live in northwest China, or what's today present day northwest China. Um, they entered the historical record around the eighth century. Uh, when around that period of time, people, a group of people called the Uyghurs moved from what is today present day Mongolia, south and south uh, west, um, to a region uh, that's really a desert and mountainous region in, in northwest China. There they settled in oasis cities, um, small cities really at the foothills of, of, uh, of a whole series of ranges of mountains. Um, so today there's around 12 million of them. Um, like I said, they're Turkic, so they speak a Turkic language, which in their case is called Uyghur. It's almost identical to Uzbek, uh, which is spoken by people in Uzbekistan. Um, and so that shows us a little bit of the, the linguistic um, uh, connectedness that they have with other Central Asian people. Uh, Uzbeks, Kazakhs, Kyrgyz, uh, all those Turkic-speaking folks speaks a language that's very similar to Uyghur. Um, and then and because of that, 
relatedness. There's a lot of diversity actually in how Uyghurs appear. So some Uyghurs look very much like they are from Mongolia. Um, others look like they are from Central Asia or from Turkey, and then others look like they're from South Asia, from Pakistan or or India. Um, and so there's a whole diversity in how how Uyghurs appear. Um, but they are a, a group of people that's cohered as a single identity over the last millennium. Um, and that's really in large part due to their faith. So they're, they're Muslim. They became Muslims around the 9th, 10th century. Um, and so for the last thousand years, they've been this, this Muslim group that's really focused their identity around shrine pilgrimages. Uh, there's shrines throughout the region where the, the bringers of Islam, the people that brought Islam to the Uyghurs, um, are thought to be buried. And so there's a, a whole calendar of, of pilgrimages that people used to follow, kind of circuit where they would go to these, these shrines. Um, and at the shrines, they would hear the stories of people who brought Islam to the region, and that really became sort of the, the narrative of their identity as a people. Um, so that's sort of the, the, the kind of general thing that, that, that brings them into their identity. Over the last millennium, they've had a real contentious relationship with other powers. In the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries, they were having a lot of connections with the Mongol Empire, which was on the rise at that time. Uh, Uyghurs worked kind of in concert with the, the Mongols. They became the scribes for the, the Mongols. Um, the Uyghurs developed their own writing system, and, and the Mongols didn't have theirs, one of their own, and so the Uyghur script became the script of the Mongol Empire, um, at least for a certain period of time, and in certain places. Um, following the collapse of the Mongol Empire, there was a retreat from the region, and so for a period of time, Uyghurs kind of lived semi-autonomously. Um, well, throughout this whole period, they had lived fairly autonomously. There, there was connections with political leaders from outside, um, and there was, you know, a military presence at times in their region, but they lived their lives pretty much on their own. Um, that began to change, I, I suppose, in the Qing dynasty, which was the last dynasty of China, um, when the Chinese state moved into the region, defeating another group of people called the Jungars, which is a Mongol group that lived in the north part of the region, uh, taking over the, the Uyghur region itself for periods of time. This was really in response to political rebellions that were carried out by a number of warlord-type figures that had moved into the Uyghur region. Um, some of them were Sufi, others were, well, most of them, I think, claimed to be Sufi in some, some sense. Um, but in general, there were, there were people that wanted power and were pushing back against the Chinese state. All of that's to say that it wasn't until the 1870s uh, that the, this, this region itself was given a new name, Xinjiang, which means New Frontier in Chinese, um, and since then has become sort of a provincial level region in China. It wasn't until the 1920s, uh, 30s, 40s that the, the Chinese state really began to grapple with whether or not this region should be fully integrated with the rest of the of the country, um, and really it didn't begin to happen until 1949, which was when the the People's Republic of China was was founded. Um, uh, so that's the the short history of how we got into the kind of the near present. That's great. That's excellent. Thank you. Uh, um, so I, I wanted to ask you about your own work, and we'll we'll kind of get into talking about the the conditions in Xinjiang now uh, I think you know through that that lens we'll get into more detail but talk about uh, your site uh, living otherwise talk about you know how you got involved with uh, studying the Uyghur people and uh, you know just what are the you know when did you start studying them what are the changes that you've seen? Um, over that period of time in terms of how their society is structured in terms of uh, its interaction with kind of the, the central Chinese authority. Just, you know, give us your own experience. Sure, happy to do that. So so I, I went to this region in the, for the first time in 2003. Uh, at that time, I was a photography student. 
Um, and, and so I was traveling throughout East Asia taking pictures for an NGO. Um, and I didn't have a lot of experience in the region, didn't speak languages well. I could speak, you know, a few words of Chinese, but beyond that, I didn't really know much. <laughs> uh, so when I uh, arrived in, in the Uyghur region, I was really taken with the space. I think probably first as a photographer, um, because it's a very unique area, uh, the, it's a desert landscape surrounded by mountains. Um, people live in these small oasis cities or villages um, that are fed by water runoff from the mountains. Um, they're, they're doing basically uh, intensive agriculture in order to, to grow things, to sustain themselves, and also doing quite a bit of sheep farming. Um, so it, one of the things that really took I was taken by was, was the way that the, the streets themselves were filled with people um, at that point in time, people were still bringing their donkey carts into the city, especially on the bazaar day, which was the one day a week in most cities or towns. They had a, a large scale market. Um, so it's a very vibrant street scene. It seemed like life itself really took place in the streets. Uh, and these streets were very narrow. They had been built up over centuries. Um, kind of twisting, winding streets that were built really organically, not from a central plan. Um, it's, the Uyghurs have a vernacular architecture that's a courtyard houses where they've built um, a series of, of housing units around a courtyard, and uh, an extended family lives in one of those units. Um, and then sometimes they're kind of built right on top of each other over time that they need to accommodate for more people. Um, many of these houses are passed down from century to century to century. So I was interested in that space. It looks a lot like a you know, Pueblo kind of style architecture. Uh, and that was really what drew me into it initially. I didn't understand that the, the situation was as politically contentious as it already was becoming already in 2003. Um, I, I neglected to mention in my uh, talking about the the history of the Uyghurs, that in the 1930s and 1940s, the Uyghurs had their own state called East Turkestan, um, which they organized in some sense with help from from uh, Central Asian uh, allies and also Russian allies in, in, in those periods of time. Um, and so Uyghurs have a pretty strong consciousness of their own identity, of wanting to have a self-determined nation. Um, and the Chinese state is very conscious of that. And so already in 2003, there was some tension between Uyghurs who are described as separatists at that point in time and, and the Chinese state. But it was, it was quite low grade. Most, most Uyghurs were not invested in, you know, fighting for independence or, or what have you. They were mostly interested in finding a better life for themselves and for their children. Um, but at that point in time, the way that the Chinese state was counteracting their, their fears around, uh, China, Uyghur separatism was they were, they had begun a project called Open Up the West. Um, first it was Open Up the Northwest, which was focused just on Uyghurs, and then they expanded it to Tibet and all of inner, inner China, or sorry, inner Asia, the, the, the frontier of China. Um, so that Open Up the West campaign was beginning to really transform the Uyghur space. Uh, they were mostly interested in building infrastructure that would allow them access to the natural resources in the region, and they thought through that process they would raise the economy, Uyghurs would become better integrated into the into the country. Um, so that made me understand, as I thought about that a little bit more after my first visit in 2003, that, that Uyghurs were really on the brink of something new, that, that their society was beginning to change. Um, and I thought that this would be something really interesting to study. And so I, I went back to school, studied Chinese, and then studied Uyghur, and then went back to the region for long periods of fieldwork, uh, first in 2011, and then a second year of fieldwork in 2014. Um, and as part of that project, I began an archive trying to um, look at, uh, at Uyghur, Kazakh, and Han, forms of cultural expression that reflect what is happening in the region. I was mostly interested in contemporary art, um, and film and photography, painting, poetry, um, a pretty wide range of what we call an anthropology expressive culture. And, and so I, I was looking for 
artifacts, small pieces of, of culture that I could, you know, present on a, in a digital format and then discuss them. Uh, to kind of give them some of the, the deeper context, where this thing comes from, what it means to people. Um, and I worked with a number of Uyghur, Kazakh, and Han scholars to do this work. Some of the pieces on, on my website is actually are written by them. Um, I really wanted to create a space for uh, a new arts scene that was emerging at the time to find expression and to circulate in the wider world. Um, and the kind of the under underlying impulse behind that was that this this was a space where where people's voices were not widely heard, or they were um, sort of channeled in certain directions by the state. The, the the authorities, the culture ministry, really tried to use arts uh, as a way of promoting its agenda, its ideology, which centered around a pretty superficial kind of ethnic harmony, Minzu Tuanjia. So is a lot of Adulation for the party and what the party was doing. It was really you know, trying to support the, the open up the West campaign, all of these things, and not really speaking about the, the forms of dispossession, the forms of displacement that were emerging through that campaign. Um, the artists, they wanted to push back against that. And so I was trying to give them a space to do that. Uh, so that's how the project began. Um, my actual dissertation work, research, uh, Focused on that to some extent, but was was a little bit more uh, tightly focused on migrant workers, migrant uh, artists who are coming to the city and trying to find a way to express what they experienced in that space. Um, and so I, I was spending a lot of time with with Uyghur and Han migrants that came to the city of Urumqi, which is the, the capital of the region, around three million people. Um, and I was interested to, to see how they tried to represent their life. And really what was happening in 2011 was the state had just introduced 3G networks across the region. And so everyone now had a smartphone um, and they were using an app called WeChat uh, to uh, talk to each other, to connect with each other and find jobs, figure out what's happening in the world, um, to be kind of find ways to be contemporary how they kind of framed it. They wanted to be, you know, contemporary Muslims, Turkic peoples, and and, and you know, citizens of the world. The Uyghurs at least wanted to do this. The Han people also, you know, had had ideas of how they wanted to present themselves as as uh, not backward because Xinjiang is seen as backward in relation to the rest of China. Uh, so I was interested in how this digital space, WeChat and other and other new platforms, were opening up a new way of people to express themselves. Um, it, it took on very, took off very quickly. Um, within, you know, two or three years, I think 45% of the Uyghur population had downloaded WeChat and was using a smart, smartphone. Um, so that meant that these young Uyghur filmmakers that were making these short little digital films, you know, using their phones or using a digital camera and then uploading them to, to WeChat, to a film salon on WeChat, they could get, you know, 800,000 viewers within you know, a week or, or so uh, on that space. And so it really became a vibrant space. And so I was studying the emergence of that space and how it was in response to those broader structural changes. To bring, I mean, I want to kind of bring, bring us to where things are now um, mm -hmm. and the, you know, sort of unfortunate <coughs> level of state involvement in Xinjiang to, to, you know, be, very bland about it, I guess, or, uh, uh, you know, to be as noncommittal as possible. Um, but we hear reports of, of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, millions maybe, uh, being placed in what the Chinese government calls vocational schools, but what look from the photographs that I've seen a lot more like re-education camps with barbed wire and guard towers. Um, there's you've written pretty extensively about the the um, kind of rapid increase in high tech surveillance that's being done uh, in Xinjiang. Um, was there an inflection point, as far as you can tell, when things really started to go in this direction, or has it been a steady kind of process since you know 1949 of sort of 
uh, increasingly kind of, and, and there have been, I'm certainly there have been things that have been done. There was, uh, you, know, you know, a lot of movement of Han Chinese into the region and, and sort of uh, displacement of Uyghurs in some sense. But has there been, like, do you, do you see a point where things went from kind of a steady encroachment into Xinjiang into something else, what we're seeing now? Or is it all just kind of a, uh, a slow, steady climb to, to where things are now? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a, it's a little bit of both. There's, there are moments of, of, of real crisis and of, of you know, very explicit violence that we can point at, but there's also a, a steady tension that's built up over decades. Um, so it's, I think to really get at this, you have to go back to the 1990s and early 2000s, which is when the infrastructure build-out really began. Uh, the, the Chinese state was very interested in gaining access to the oil, natural gas, and coal reserves that were in this region. Um, each of those are you know, around 20 to 30 percent of Chinese uh, resources in those in those uh, commodities, those resources. Um, and in addition to that, they began to build out uh, new forms of industrial scale agriculture. Uh, today, around 80 percent of Chinese cotton comes from this region. Um, 25% of the world's tomatoes comes from this region. Uh, and all of those industries, those new industries, are really run by Han settlers, people that have been moved in since the 1990s. Um, and many of them are concentrated in the Uyghur homeland itself, which is really just the south part of this region. Um, it's uh, what they call the Tarim Basin, surrounded by the Himalaya Mountains on the south, the, the Pamirs on the west, and then the Tian Shan Mountains, the Heavenly Mountains on the north. Um, and so the, the, the state in the 1990s built a railroad that connected uh, the rest of China all the way to Kashgar, which is really the, the cultural heart of the Uyghur homeland. And then later, uh, over the next decade, they built con- continued that railroad down to Hotan, which is you know, basically as far away as you can get from the, the, the Chinese hinterland. So through the, those infrastructure build-outs, railroads, roads, pipelines, and the service industries that were needed to facilitate them, uh, the Chinese state really began to facilitate a, a, a new economy in the region, and really one that centered around Han activity. And so Uyghurs felt themselves dispossessed of their land. Um, in some cases, they were the land was physically taken from them, in other cases, it was a bit more subtle than that. It was a bit more like a, you know, the process of gentrification that could happen in any neighborhood, in any city, where it's new people that come into the, into the region with, with more resources, with better connections, better access to jobs, higher income. They move in, they can afford the rents, they can buy things. Um, the, the cost of living begins to rise. And then through that process, Uyghurs begin to feel themselves becoming poorer in a way, even though they were making the same amount of, you know, uh, they were growing the same amount of, of melons or what have you uh, in their oasis city, uh, that that those products that they were growing were, were not having the same value as, as they had previous. Um, there's also just, you know, many more opportunities available to people. And so that makes them feel a sense of being left behind. All of this produced forms of desperation among Uyghurs. Uh, they began to send young young folks, especially to the cities, to find work. Uh, but then when they got to the cities, they weren't often able to find jobs. Um, the state began to channel Uyghurs through an education system that promised them jobs, but in the end, they often weren't given jobs. And then in the early 2000s, uh, they began the state began a process of uh, transferring populations of people, often coercively, uh, to eastern China to work in factories as interns, uh, often low-paid interns. Um, and so over the that decade, the 2000s, fairly large percentage of young folks were, were sent to eastern China. Well, in one county where I've, I've, I've done a bit of work, uh, around 300,000 people were sent. So that led to a, a major incident eventually in 2009, uh, which many people point to as a moment of crisis. Uh, where uh, some of these young Uyghur workers that are sent to work in a factory in eastern China in Guangdong province, which is right next to Hong Kong, um, they uh, got into conflict with Han workers in that same factory. 
the Uyghur young men were accused of raping a Han woman, um, and the Han workers in the middle of the night kind of descended on the Uyghur dorm and began beating Uyghurs. Um, and in the end, several were killed. Um, and the, the Han workers dragged the bodies out of the people that were killed. And also there was, you know, dozens that were really beaten really severely that were also dragged out, um, sort of lynch mob style. And there was videos that were made of this. Uh, the videos began to circulate way back in the Uyghur homeland. Um, and there really was a delayed response from the government, from police. Uh, to you know, stop this from happening, to you know, arrest the perpetrators. And so Uyghurs took to the streets in Urumqi, the capital of the region. Many of them were students uh, from colleges and high schools. They were carrying Chinese flags and chanting of, that you know, their, their lives are valuable too and that the government should you know, uh, protect them, protect their rights. Um, there's a lot of anger already because of the, the labor transfer program itself was seen as coercive. People didn't feel as though they had a choice but to go. If the local authority said you you're need to go to the factory in eastern China, uh, the person just had to do it. Um, and then it turned out, like from a legal perspective, that, that the people that were sent there were not protected by the state. And so they took to the streets saying our lives are important too. We should be protected. It's hard to say exactly how many people, maybe 300 or so. They went to the, the center of the city carrying those flags. And then the, the police, you know, over an hour or two began arresting and beating them. Um, in response, many more Uyghurs joined the protest. People that lived, you know, in nearby neighborhoods, many of them young migrants. And they began to you know, destroy Han businesses um, and attack Han people that they met on the street. Um, so over the next day or so, it was really you know, a lot of violence throughout the city, it really turned into something like a race riot. Um, in the end, around 190 or so people were killed, most of them Han. Um, this is according to the official state released the numbers. Um, there's reports from Human Rights Watch that in the days that followed, hundreds and hundreds of young Uyghur men were disappeared by the state, um, and we can find some evidence of that in video and in documentation. Um, it's likely that it's actually much higher than several hundred. It could be thousands of people that were taken. So that became a major inflection point for Uyghurs in general, 2009. Um, the Uyghurs had used Western forms of media. Uh, they had used Facebook and other social media to talk about the what had happened in that factory in eastern China, and to organize the the, uh, the protest. And so immediately following that, uh, the state in general, all across China, um, banned Facebook and Twitter. Um, and so since that time, those two social media um, applications have been banned throughout the country. In the Xinjiang region itself, the Uyghur region, they, they turned off the internet for about nine months. Um, to stop any forms of protest or organizing. Um, and then eventually when they turned it back on, that's when the 3G networks came. Um, and, and, and new apps, uh, domestic apps like WeChat. Um, so I, in my, what we were talking about previously, the website, I, I talked about how WeChat really fostered a new kind of cultural flourishing, uh, because it was this sort of semi-autonomous space where Uyghurs could speak fairly freely. Um, and that was really because WeChat enables oral speech. Um, it's how you can connect with each other. You can just send messages to each other using oral speech. It's a little bit like uh, WhatsApp um, in that way. And so you can have a, a kind of semi-public group of people that can follow someone. Um, and I, it, I talked about how it produced this kind of cultural and economic flourishing. It also produced a religious revival. Um, Uyghurs began to connect with with uh, Uyghur teachers ac across the region and also in other places in in Turkey and Egypt. Um, this Uyghurs living on diaspora that were using that same app. Um, and so over you know three or so years from 2012 to 2014, um, many many young Uyghurs, in particular particular young men, began to 
follow religious teachers. Um, mostly they were interested in just kind of normal forms of Islam. They were interested in, you know, what does it mean to be a, a, a Muslim today? Well, how do Muslims practice in other places? What's halal? What's haram? How frequently should we pray? You know, just the basic questions. Um, because, you know, since way back in the 19th, you know, 60s and 70s, uh, Islam had been kind of uh, pushed to the side by the Chinese state. It had been censored and people hadn't been able to to practice it freely or to study it freely. The madrasas had all been closed. And so this really, the technology really gave Uyghurs a way of kind of gaining more knowledge about what, it, what does it mean to be Muslim. They also began to study the Quran, to learn the Quran, to read it, to learn Arabic, uh, to learn Turkish. Um, there was an efflorescence of Turkish and Iranian film that was coming into the region. Uh, so people really started to see themselves as sort of part of the global Muslim community in a new way. Anyway, all of this produced a transformation of the Uyghur population, especially the younger folks. They became more pious in how they appeared. Uh, you could like, look at someone walking down the street and you could tell that that person was, was quite religious because he, you know, he had a beard. Um, might dress differently. Women began to dress differently, began to veil themselves. And so the state became very concerned about this, uh, because they had had this violent incident back in 2009. The religious revival or turn towards more pious practice was in some ways a response to the crackdown that followed that 2009 incident. And then in 2013 and 2014, there, there was a, a turn towards not really a turn, but there was a rise in uh, forms of violent protest um, or, or attacks in some cases. Uyghurs attacking um, police stations, um, and then in some cases, civilians. Um, oftentimes, these attacks were not organized. It wasn't a coherent you know, insurgency of any sort. It was often very local and in response to forms of injustice in the person or groups of people's lives. Um, many people had lost a, a father or husband or you know brother um, in the police sweeps that followed 2009. But these the violent in- attacks had a, had a big effect on public opinion across China and on the Chinese state. Uh, and this was because they were they couldn't hide them very easily. They happened outside of the region. A few of them. Uh, one of them happened in Kunming, which is a, a major city in Yunnan Province in eastern China or southwest China, actually, um, at a train station. Around 30, 35 people or so were killed by a group of Uyghurs that were dressed all in black, carrying um, knives. Um, that's one of the things that really makes an insurgency difficult for Uyghurs, is that um, they have no access to weapons. And so what they're using is basically farm tools or knives um, if they carry out an attack. Um, it was really horrific, though. Using knives to kill 35 people is very bloody, and it was lots and lots of Han people were there. It was filmed. It was circulated very quickly, although the state tried to control the narrative. Many people heard about it. Many, many people were traumatized by it. Um, across China, they began to refer to this as China's 9-11. Um, and this, this happened in, in early 2014. Then there was another attack um, at, in Tiananmen Square, um, which is the center of Beijing, um, where someone drove a truck, a Uyghur man and his wife and his mother, who is elderly, drove a truck uh, through a crowd of tourists, killing a, a number of them as well. And that was something that was captured on film, too. There was also attacks in Urumqi, another vehicle attack and a, a bombing at the train station. Um, so taken together, these four attacks really... I think galvanized the Chinese leadership, Xi Jinping's administration to make a change. And so in 2014, they began what they called the People's War on Terror. They declared this in May of that year. Um, and through that process, they began first to kind of assess the population, try to figure out where do people live? Who are the you know, potential insurgents, the active minority um, that we need to contain? Um, they began to conflate religious practice, piety, with potential terrorism. They called that piety extremism. Um, And so they they added, in in addition to the separatist charge that had been associated with Uyghurs for decades, they began to call Uyghurs potential terrorists, potential extremists. Um, And people that appeared 
religious in their practice or had used WeChat to talk about their faith, to download unauthorized religious messages or learn Arabic, they were seen as suspicious. Um, and so over time, it took a number of years for this assessment process to really be fully realized. Uh, but by 2016-17, they had begun to send around 10% or so of the Uyghur population, which is you know, over a million people, into camps that had been purpose-built over those, those two years um, for the re-education of the Uyghurs. Um, and like you said, these, these camps are really medium security prisons. They're, uh, they're spaces that hold people for indefinite periods of time. So they, that's why they should really be referred to as camps rather than prisons or schools because there's no, you know, contract that someone assigned to be a student and there's no prison sentence that says this person needs to be re-educated for this period of time. It's really fully up to the, the authorities of that facility to determine you know, whether this should this person should be released or not. Um, so they're they're being held basically because of their ethnicity and because of their the kind of religious practice that they've done in the past. Many of them have been arrested or t- not arrested but detained, sent to the camps because of things that they did online. Uh, they actually have a category for this called a 913 crime. Uh, which refers to a special unit of cybercrime. Um, and people are being sent to camps because they were part of a Quran study group that they, you know, uh, posted, you know, verses on their WeChat wall because they had pictures of themselves in Islamic attire, those sorts of things. Um, it's very innocuous behavior that's now being conflated with something much more serious than, than it actually is. Talk. I, I'd like to talk a little more about um, not just the camps, but the you know other evidence that that uh, the Chinese government has attacked sort of uh, the practice of Islam. There are, I think, satellite photographs that suggest that mosques are being destroyed, and, um, and you know, as, as you've written, you know, you've written about the surveillance. You know, I, I'd like to to get into that. Um, and I, I'd particularly be interested in, in, um, talking about how we, uh, kind of know that this stuff is going on. Where, where does the information come from? I've seen mm-hmm. discourse, uh, to the effect that, uh, you know, the only time the West cares about Muslims is when it, you know, they give them a, a chance to criticize China. My feeling about that is, if the Uyghurs were a predominantly Christian group, this would be all over the place. It would like the fact that they're Muslim is part of the reason why this story has remained relatively obscure. Uh, but talk about how we we know, you know, what we've heard from from uh, people coming out of the region, or from you know uh, what we've learned from satellite images and and other things to tell us what is is actually going on. Right. So it. It is very difficult to get accurate numbers of the people that are detained um, to get a full estimate of, of what's of, of how many people have been detained. Um, but we we can corroborate from different sources and figure out a kind of baseline as to you know what this looks like. The the first numbers we got were came from a, a government source, although it was difficult to trace the origins of that government source that placed the number of people that had been sent to these camps at around um, a little a little over a million people. Um, and this was back uh, at the beginning of 2018. So that was, you know, well, this is what this one government source is saying. Um, but, you know, since we couldn't fully verify it, we had to find other ways of, of thinking through this. Uh, other Another human rights organization uh, sent... Han individuals, Chinese-speaking folks, into Uyghur villages to interview them, uh, to kind of get a sense from them how many people had disappeared from their village or been sent to these camps. Everyone knows about the camps throughout Xinjiang. Uh, I was there in 2018, uh, in April, um, and that's, you know, I, I talked to many people. Everyone, everyone it, it seemed, knew about them, especially Uyghurs knew very explicitly about the camps. They also, though, didn't know the numbers. I mean, it's, the government isn't sharing those those numbers with people. 
so, so we had those two kind of baseline sort of assessments, these people that had gone into these villages, interviewed people, and then in different parts of the region, and then based on, you know, six different villages, they, they decided, you know, they, they extrapolated what the numbers could be. And it came out to something pretty similar to what the government source said. Um, that's still not, you know, fully validating it, at least not from my perspective, um, but it's something to kind of get started with. Then we began to follow these bidding contracts because um, the Chinese state, in order to build these camps, uh, needed to contract with private companies. Um, and as part of the rules, they needed to public publicly do this. Um, and if you can read Chinese, you can find these contracts, or at least you could, back in 2018. And so a scholar named Adrian Zenz really went to town looking at these these bidding contracts. Um, and that's how you began to kind of see the sort of square footage that was being built uh, based on the, the, the bidding contracts that we were seeing, you know, the, the spaces that they wanted to build. Um, you could also see the, the equipment that they needed, which was basically prison equipment. Um, they were hiring, they were, they were buying tasers, they were buying cattle prods. They were buying all kinds of equipment that is not necessary for a school of any sort. Um, and then another scholar, a uh, graduate student, a law student at the University of British Columbia named Shan Zhang, um, who's a Chinese citizen, uh, began to look, based on these bidding contracts, at um, uh, satellite imagery that began to, that you could see where these spaces were being built. And because Google Earth is, you know, a uh, a global surveillance system, um, we were able to trace over time the build-out of these camps. And so you can actually see them being built across the region. And there's now hundreds of them that are you can find um, online. And, you know, there's some limits in what a satellite image can do, but you can see that there are watchtowers, that there's razor wire. Um, you can compare them with government uh, sourced images as well. Uh, many of the at least initially, many of the, the local authorities that were building these camps were actually quite proud of them. because It was a big achievement in their county to build a big camp. Um, and so they would post things on their WeChat um, like for their you know, local administration about the opening of a new camp. Um, or, and, and in some cases, they, they posted pictures of inmates, detainees inside the camps. Um, so all of those things taken together give us a sense that these things are, are definitely real. Um, we also have, you know, numerous ethnographers like myself who speak Uyghur, speak Chinese, have lived in the region for a long time, have gone to the region and interviewed people. And they've also confirmed these things are happening. I have a relative in the camp. Um, just going to Arumchi, the city where I lived for, for two years, um, I could see that there was, you know, lots and lots of people missing. Um, some of them had just been sent back to the countryside where they were from, um, but many of them were in the camp based on the, the, the interviews I did with people that I met there. Um, so there's, you know, the, the Uyghur neighborhood in Rimchi itself, there's a, a noticeable, noticeable absence of people. Um, the, the, I think, most powerful form of testimony that we have in confirmation of the camps and, and what the conditions are like inside are those that have been released from them. Um, Many of the the people that have gotten out, which isn't that many, uh, were people from Kazakhstan or Kazakh ethnic Kazakhs from from Xinjiang uh, that were released and have now made their way to Kazakhstan. Um, and there's several hundred of them there now, uh, and so we've we've been able to interview them as well, and they've talked about the conditions in the camp, the process of being sent to the camp, um, the the way that Uyghurs were treated in the camp. Um, versus Kazakhs, which Uyghurs were treated much more harshly. Um, they've talked about the conditions inside and, and the kind of forms of torture or that happened in detention before being sent to the, the camp. Um, so it's one of the, that's one of the, the real black holes in the system is the sort of black sites, uh, the detention centers where people are held and interrogated for long periods of time, sometimes, you know, six months to a year before actually being sent to the camp itself. Um, so they talked about that process, what that looks like. All of this gives us a fairly holistic view of the camp system. It doesn't, though, tell us, you know, with any certainty, you know, if it is a million people, if it's a million point five million, a million point five, if it's, 
if it's you know eight hundred thousand. In any case, it's a large, large number of people. Um, it's a noticeable absence in the society. It's something that's affecting nearly everyone in the society, um, and it's horrific. Uh, regardless of the, the actual numbers, um, we we know that it's it's it is really there. So the another thing I'd like to talk about is um, the extent to which. Um, or maybe we could phrase this another way. Sorry, we we could. Uh, I'd like to talk about where you see things going from here, and that I'm I have a sort of a two part question. One is in terms of what's happening in Xinjiang. You know, can we expect that this is you know the camps and the you know the the sort of current policy is going to continue indefinitely? Is there uh, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. And the other thing is, to what extent is the Chinese government um, sort of maybe using Xinjiang as a laboratory in, in some sense to, to test out methods of dealing with suspect populations? And here, I think especially, uh, I'd like to talk about the, what you've written about the surveillance technology and whether that's something that um, you know how it how it's being used in Xinjiang and and whether that's sort of a proving ground or a testing ground for taking the, those technologies to other parts of China and uh, you know what are the the implications for that? Mm -hmm. So maybe I'll start with the second part of that question. Uh, talking about the, the growth of the security industrial complex in this region, um, which is something I've written a bit about. Uh, since 2009, the Chinese state has begun a process of building out an in, uh, a security, high-tech security complex in this region. Um, they were very concerned as they began to see people use WeChat with so much autonomy that, that something needed to be done. And so uh, over the last decade, the tech firms that are working in this region have gone from you know, just a handful to over 1,400 different tech firms. Um, and one of the things that they were trying to do is sort of break the autonomy of the Uyghur Internet. So they had to be able to assess Uyghur spoken language, which was the big problem. They, they really couldn't censor Uyghur sp spoken language. Um, so they needed to develop software uh, through using machine learning and other other forms of, of technological development to automate the transcription and translation of Uyghur tech um, in order to assess it. Um, so that's a, a kind of um, perception AI problem, uh, which is when you're trying to take you know, something that's happening in the world and digitize it in order to quantify and, and define patterns in it. Uh, in this case, it was sound. Uh, it's the same sort of technology that you know Amazon or Microsoft is using in a smart smart speaker kind of system, where they're trying to detect a person's voice, identify that voice, and find the patterns in the voice in order to just figure out what the person's saying. Um, in this case, they were trying to work across languages, which made it even more difficult. Uh, but China is really leading the field now in these technologies, and and the the Uyghur case uh, was one of the breakthroughs in in developing that kind of technology to to go across language. Um, so in order to get all, get at this stuff, one of the things that they needed to do is they needed to collect biometric data from everyone, uh, which meant that all Uyghurs and others in the region were asked to go to the local police station and submit a voice signature, which means recording their, their voice into a device, speaking, uh, reading the same text several times in order to get a unique voice signature for each person. And then they began, they did a face scan for each person as well. Um, scanning them from all directions, asking them to do different expressions into the camera um, in order to get a full read of the person's face, a, a real high-fidelity image. Now, 36 million people did this, which means that the, in this context, this region, they have a kind of unprecedented database of images of people's faces and of voices. Um, and so they, they have a lot to work with, um, real high-fidelity stuff. And, and then in addition to this, they began to build out hard checkpoints um, at every jurisdictional boundary as people left a town or a city 
um, and went into any institution. So if you went to your bank or university, you'd go through a checkpoint, have your voice, your, your, your face scanned, uh, matched to your ID. So they have a hard reset of the system to determine where that person is in time and, and space. Um, in addition, they'd be built out, uh, face scan enabled, face surveillance enabled camera systems throughout the cities. They call these safe city projects that are, have the capability to assess people's faces there as well so they can track people as they move over time uh, from checkpoint to checkpoint. And then you know, as they get to the checkpoint, it actually resets the system for them. Um, all of this allowed them to really begin to uh, assess people's behavior, to find patterns in behavior and do kinds of forms of predictive policing, or at least that's what they talk about. They're looking for micro clues of, of any sort of deviance. Um, what really ended, you know, sent people to the camps though was, was speech that was detected as, as being, um, extremist in some ways, um, and going back to people's digital history. So people that were doing things in 2012, 13, 14 on WeChat, um, that stuff, um, has now been assessed. And that was really the criminal behavior, you know, years after the, after the fact that has sent them uh, into the, the camp system. The, the build out of this surveillance apparatus, um, has lots of applications beyond the weaker context. I mean, it's allowing them to control and retrain, reeducate this population. Um, one of the things that's coming through the, the camp system is people are being sent after they graduate from camp into, uh, labor facilities, into factories that are built adjacent to the camps, uh, where they're uh, are, are given a job mostly in textiles uh, doing work. And so I think from the Chinese state perspective, they, they feel like it's been successful in sort of breaking down the, the political or religi- religious ethnic um, identity that, that was uh, recalcitrant and, and now making that person docile and, and, and at the same time useful in production. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that's being produced through the system is, is compliance and productive uh, workers. Um, it's also producing new forms and novel forms of control, population management. It allows kind of a small police force to control a large population of people. Um, and so that's a tool that could be used in many different contexts and will likely be used in other parts of China to some extent, although without those hard checkpoints likely. Um, and it's being sold to other authoritarian states. So one of the big companies in this region, a, a company called Cloudwalk, who pioneered a lot of the face scanning um, in the region, has partnered with Zimbabwe to build a national level face uh, uh, face surveillance database um, and uh, a hard checkpoint system, especially centered around transportation. Um, it's one of the first uses of Chinese AI in the, the African continent, and it's kind of heralded as a model for for um, for the country in China. A lot of people in China are talking about how this is a landmark uh, where like, the, the China model of, of um, population management through technology is being used in other places. Um, so that's a, another application. There's there's lots of lots of spaces for this kind of surveillance stuff to be to be sent elsewhere. I mean the the language stuff that they're doing with Uyghur to Chinese. It's also being used, you know, English to Chinese. Um, and there's lots of ways that this stuff can be used in other contexts. It's very similar to a military industrial complex elsewhere, the U.S. military industrial complex where, you know, we were building airplanes and tanks and all that stuff uh, back in World War II. And, and, and then, you know, it became commercial airlines. Um, it became um, uh, large transport trucks, things like that. Um, it's what we're seeing in Xinjiang, the sort of laboratory space is really a space to develop technologies and then adapt them for other contexts. The, the first part of your question though, which is about, um, is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Um, well, one of the things that the Chinese state has done is, you know, in response to all of the, the, the critique of this camp system, they've at least they, they first denied that these camps existed. They said that it's just a fiction made up by the West. Um, and then they said, no, they do exist. They're vocational training schools. Um, and they're really excellent. They're a, a new way of, um, you know, retraining an insurgent population, um, a new way of doing the war on terror. 
in some ways, I mean, they're, they're not wrong, but it is a, a much better approach to defeating a potential enemy, uh, is to, to, rather than killing them, um, which is what the U.S. has done in Iraq and Afghanistan by, by bombing and occupying for periods of time those states. Um, but at the same time, the Uyghurs are not an insurgent population. They really didn't, you know, pose an existential threat to the Chinese state. Um, instead, it's really a justification for something more like a, a kind of colonialism. Um, and camps themselves are really abhorrent because there's they really open up space for all kinds of abuse. Um, the, the, the Chinese state hasn't now admitted to these camps being there, uh, really call them schools, uh, which is one one thing that's that's come out of you know the pushback against this. They've talked about how they're going to reduce the number of schools and camps over time. Um, we don't know if that's actually going to happen, but that's what they've talked about. They've also now begun to move people into these factory spaces adjacent to the camps. Um, those that graduate, those that learn Chinese and pass the ideology exams. Um, so that's, I, I suppose, a positive step. Beyond that, though, we, we don't have a lot of reason for hope. Um, there's a lot of reluctance on the part of other states to push back against the Chinese state. Um, like if we would compare what's going on with the Uyghurs to what's happened to the Rohingya in, in, in Myanmar, um, states are much, much more likely to condemn what happened to the Rohingya than they are to talk about what happened to the Uyghurs. And that's really, I think, because of Chinese power in the world. So this is a world power um, that has a lot of investment, a lot of trade with other states. Even Muslim-majority states are, are very reluctant to condemn China. Um so it's it's hard to see good solutions. One of the things that the the U.S. and other Western nations are talking about are targeted sanctions of of the the political leaders that are in charge of this campaign, and also the tech companies that are are um, building out this surveillance system. Um, there, I think we have a bit of leverage. I think the, especially the, the private companies themselves are quite vulnerable to boycotts, to forms of condemnation, especially if we sustain that condemnation over time. It can really damage them. Um, so, so those are some things that I think people could push back against. Um, there's, you know, some real specific, uh, ways that, that people could, could, uh, push back against them. Uh, there's a lot of, um, investment funds that, that are backing a lot of these technology firms um, and divesting from those funds could, could do that. You can also you know, talk to your representatives about supporting the Uyghur Human Rights Bill, uh, which is currently, I think, under consideration. It's a, it's a bipartisan bill um, that is going to do this sort of targeted sanctions against uh, key leaders. Is it, I mean, is it fair to say, because I know, you know, what people will, what some people may say when you, you bring in the, the Rohingyas, that's a genocide, and we haven't seen killing on, on any scale in, in this situation, but um, um, I, would, I would argue there is a cultural genocide happening here, that, that there's an effort to um, not get rid of the Uyghur, but to get rid of everything about the Uyghur culture uh, that makes it unique or, or different from, uh, you know, sort of state-sanctioned or state-mandated Chinese culture. Is that is that fair to say? I mean, or am I going too far? Yeah, I think it is fair to say that. Um, I suppose that the nearest analogy is really like forms of settler colonialism that have helped, helped happened elsewhere in the in the world in the past. Um, it's the the process that they're undergoing in in Northwest China. The Uyghurs are undergoing is you know them you know having their Uyghurness killed while their while the person is being saved, um, which is similar to what the you know in North America we talked about you know, killing the native well while saving the person um, in that, in the North American context uh, that was centered around, you know, teaching the heathen, the, the savage, teaching that person to be civilized by teaching them Christianity. Um, 
in the Chinese context is not you know, Christianity, but it's what they call secularism, how it's often referred to, or civilization of quality. They talk about teaching them you know, how to have industrial quality. Um, basically, what they're doing is they're they're telling them that 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 Uyghur culture, that Uyghur language, Uyghur religion, which is Islam, that those things are not valuable. In fact, that they're damaging to them, that, that Islam itself is a, an ideology of evil. They talk about removing the tumors and, and curing the person, um, and that's what the camps are intended to do. They've also, of course, you know, torn apart the basic institutions of Uyghur society, which is their faith and their families. Uh, in many cases now, the, the children have been taken from parents and are being placed in residential schools or boarding schools. Um, where they're taught only Chinese and to disavow their, their Uyghur identity. Uh, even those that aren't separated from each other are asked to mo- monitor their parents. Um, they've sent over 1 million Han uh, intelligence workers to live in Uyghur homes uh, over periods of time in order to assess them and to surveil them. Uh, so it's very invasive. It's, Throughout the whole society, we don't we don't see mass killing at least not at this point. Although there have been you know hundreds of people killed at least maybe thousands through this process, especially those that were you know elderly that had a difficult time in the camp environment. There's lots and lots of people that have disappeared. Um, many that I think have died in interrogation prior to getting into the camp system. We're also haven't even mentioned that there's hundreds of thousands of people that have been formally arrested and sent into the prison system where they're uh, being given long prison sentences. Um, Those folks are also going to be quite damaged through this process. I think what we're seeing here is, you know, different from the Rohingya case in, in the ways that leaders are not allowed to leave. They can't flee. Um, There's no open borders for them. they also um, are being kind of killed slowly, so it's it's not as immediately apparent what's happening on the ground. Um, and the killing is, is more of a psychological killing rather than a physical one. So, so all of those things make it difficult to really get at and explain kind of the tragedy of it. But it is it is very tragic. It's something that you know. Is, is making people feel as though they have no reason to live um, and it's targeting an entire society. So it really is one of the, the most horrific you know, moments in our, in, our current, in our current world. All right. Um, I, I keep ending these episodes on a downer, but this is, <laughs> I think this is un, unquestionably one where it's warranted. Um, because this is still going on. And as you say, it's some of the effects are, are, you know, even if the camps were all shut tomorrow, the effects would still be, uh, would still be there. There's no getting rid of that stuff. Exactly. It's, it's something that will, I think, you know, cause damage for generations. And I think really the Chinese state is, is feeling like many of the people that are in the camp, the people that have been raised as Uyghurs and, you know, think as Uyghurs, that they can never be fully re-educated. And so I think what they're thinking is that the next generation, these Uyghur children that are being sent to the residential schools or being separated from their parents, told to monitor their parents, that they are the, the ones that could really be targeted and could really be transformed. And so I think what we're seeing is just a, a long process probably of this playing out over decades. Um, so I think one of the important things is to really keep a light on this because I think that that population in the camps is very, very vulnerable and and if we don't continue to to really watch it very closely, we could begin to see forms of mass death and, and, and those things, which would, of course, be extremely horrific. Darren Byler, thank you for uh, being on the show. Again, the website is livingotherwise.com, and uh, I'll have links. I'll have a link to that and uh, a couple of other things for people to check out in the show description. Uh, thanks again. Thank you so much. 
Okay, uh, I want to thank Darren Byler once again for coming on and talking to us about the Uyghur. Uh, this is a topic that I've been trying to put together a show about for months now, uh, and I was very grateful that he was able to come on and, and help walk us through it. Uh, as I said in the beginning uh, of the episode, I'll have links to uh, his website and other uh, writings in the show description, so definitely check those out. And uh, with that, I will say goodbye. As always, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.